Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's in the Old Testament. You'll find it after the book of Ezekiel if you have trouble finding it. You can look in the table of contents, but we started a sermon series on the book of Daniel last Sunday morning. We're going to continue that throughout the month of January, and the way that I want to really begin this morning is just by introducing this story by reading the first seven verses. So, If you're turning over to Daniel, I'm going to start in Daniel chapter 3 and just read verses 1 through 7 to really get us uh, in the mood, set the tone for this story and for what we're talking about during the sermon this morning. Starting in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You were commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the harp, the drum, the entire musical ensemble, you were to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the harp, the drum, the entire musical ensemble, all of the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We read a story like this, or at least just the first seven verses, and a little bit of it is repetitive, but it's about idol worship. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we mentioned briefly last week, is the most powerful man in the world. He's the king of Babylon. They've taken over the people of Jerusalem. They've taken captives back with them. They've taken things from the temple of God in Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar is powerful enough to make this statue and then command all the people in the province of Dura to bow down and to worship it when they hear the music. So this is idol worship. When you read a story like this, Maybe your first thought, if you're being honest, is this seems primitive, it seems archaic, it seems ancient, outdated. Why would they bow down and worship a statue or an image or something that was made by a human being? Who would do that? Why would they do that? And for us, living in the 21st century, we're too advanced to do something like that, right? We're educated. We've come a long ways. We know history. We know that the thought of bowing down to a statue or a man-made idol seems silly. It seems ridiculous. So we've come too far to practice idol worship. That's maybe at first glance, but then we keep thinking and we do some honest evaluation of ourselves and our culture, and maybe we're not that different from the people of the ancient world. Maybe we're not that different from the people in Daniel chapter 3 who bow down to a statue. Uh, I was reading an article earlier this week on Google, and the title of the article was, Is Google a Modern-Day High-Tech God? 
How many of you have used Google in the last week? Anybody Google searched anything? How many of you have used Google in the last 12 hours? I would say yes to that myself. Okay, this article made me a little uncomfortable, but it said in this modern world that we live in as people move away from traditional religions, that they said Google has kind of served as a god. Google is omnipresent. It's available 24-7. Uh, Google knows all of our history. It knows our secrets. Google knows uh, all the answers. So we turn to Google when we have problems or we have questions, and we ask Google. So they said that Google is a modern-day high-tech God, and that made me a little uncomfortable reading that. Then I read an article uh, about smartphones. Android did a, an experiment on willing participants where they placed a device in the phone and the device would track how often you would touch, tap, swipe, or click on your phone per day. And what they discovered after this experiment, after they calculated it all up, is the average person would touch, tap, swipe, or click their phone around 2,617 times a day. That's on average. The more excessive users would touch uh, tap, swipe, or click their phones over 5,000 times a day. Uh, we were talking about this in our staff meeting earlier this week, and apparently on your iPhone, you can activate something that will, will tell you how often you use your phone and what you're using your phone doing. And right before I got up here to preach, which is kind of ironic, I had a, a message that said you were on your phone an average of two hours and something per day. It didn't say, it didn't break it down for me, but I imagine a lot of that is on the Bible app, which is probably true for most of you, but (laughs) we use our phones a lot. 2,617 touches or swipes, clicks per day. Uh, I heard one speaker say that if you go in public or you just look around and pay attention, most people have their heads down looking at their phone, and what position is that? That's the head-bowed position, so in a sense, we're bowing to our idols, and you see people doing that all around us. Last week, we mentioned false gods, little g-god. We mentioned idols and talked about bad habits or addictions, and I mentioned to you that food really had become that in my life, or at least the way that I abused the use of the food that we have that God has given us, or maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's caffeine, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's another form of drug, whatever it may be, we all have some habits, we have some sinful behaviors that subtly creep into our lives and become normal for us. And those things can become false gods, those can become idols. So really, if we're being honest, we're, just, we're not that different from the people that we're reading about in Daniel chapter 3, from these ancient people who would bow down and worship a statue. It's just that most of our idols are hidden in plain sight. They're ordinary. We may not have the God of commerce or the God of the hunt or the God of agriculture, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the stars. We may not have that, but we do our kneeling and we do our bowing with our bank accounts, with our imaginations, with our search history, with our calendars. We have our own idols. They're just a little more ordinary. They're not a big golden statue that everybody is walking out to bow before. We do our bowing and our kneeling in different ways. And a lot of these things that I've mentioned so far, they're not sinful in and of themselves. They're not immoral. They're amoral. They're morally neutral until they're not. And when we abuse them, it's the way that we use certain things. As I mentioned, for me, it's been food. 
And you could probably fill in the blank for your own life. A preacher named Kyle Eidelman, which I know is a little ironic because I'm mentioning idols. His name is I-D-L-E, man, idol man. Uh, He wrote a book called Gods at War. In this book, it's basically just taking money, food, whatever else you can think of, different forms of entertainment, and how we make them gods. And in his book, I will quote him, he says... That food, sex, and entertainment are not sinful or evil in and of themselves. In fact, these things have the potential to be good gifts from God. But inside the temple of pleasure, gifts are often turned into gods. See, we live in this post-industrial society where most of our survival needs are met. And so we have this obsessive quest for pleasure. And we wind up worshiping pleasure. And the gifts that God has given us, like food and maybe some forms of entertainment or whatever else it may be, those are gifts that God has given us. It's the way that we use it. It's the way that we abuse these gifts that turns into an idol or a false god. And these modern-day idols turn into enslavement. That's why we see addictions all the time or most of our bad habits that maybe we wouldn't consider an addiction. If we try this 10-day challenge that we proposed last week, we might find out that we have some pretty bad habits that are hard to break. Maybe we're enslaved to these things. And we go into the temple of pleasure, this endless pursuit of this worship of pleasure. What promises us pleasure and happiness only brings pain. So we read Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, and what we realize, or at least what I realize, is we're not that different from these people. They bow down to a giant statue, but we're not that different. We just do our bowing and our kneeling to more ordinary things. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has this statue built. Why does he do that? Why does he command all these people to bow down and to worship? That's probably because he's prideful, all of his great conquests. He's the most powerful man in the world. He can do something like this. When he commands everyone to bow and to worship or die, and they do it, that shows their allegiance. And they're in the province of Dura. Just outside of Babylon, Dura just means a walled enclosure. And so all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages, anybody that's in that area, when they hear this musical ensemble, they are to bow down and to worship. You know, music back then, just like it does today, can stir our emotions, so Nebuchadnezzar is wise in doing that, and when they hear the music, everybody bows down, except for three people. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Last week in Daniel chapter 1, we really learned that their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. But they're given new names when they're taken as captives to Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of all the people that are bowing to the statue, they're the only three who are not. And so some accusations are brought against them to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's brought to his attention in verse 8 through 12 that these three men, when they hear the music, they're not bowing down and they're not worshiping. And then verse 12, it says, they pay no attention to you. If you read Daniel chapter 6, that's Daniel in the lion's den, uh, similar accusation. Daniel is accused of paying no attention to this new law not to pray. They're accused of paying no attention to this law to bow down to this statue. So Nebuchadnezzar in verse 13, it says he's in furious rage. And he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they 
brought in those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You do not serve my gods. You do not worship the golden statue I've set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound and then you hear the whole musical ensemble there, he said, uh, fall down and worship the statue that I have made. Well, that's well and good. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? He's mad. He's angry. But for whatever reason, he's going to give them one more chance to hear the music and to bow down to this statue. Probably a big wooden statue with gold plates around it. And in his anger, for whatever reason, maybe it's because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have received these promotions through their training in Babylon, and maybe they've earned a little bit of respect for Nebuchadnezzar, so he's going to give them one more chance to worship these idols or these false gods. But if not, you're going to die. You're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. And then in verse 16 through 18... This is probably one of the more well-known passages from Daniel chapter 3 from this story. They get a chance to speak. And hear their words. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Standing before the most powerful man in the world, they said, We believe our God can deliver us, and if not, we're still not going to bow down and worship the statue. I think I've mentioned uh, Dr. Kent Brantley before in another sermon illustration. If you remember, I think it was around 2014, this great Ebola outbreak took place in West Africa. It was a scary time for us as Americans because no American had ever had Ebola, but there were some missionaries serving in West Africa as doctors helping patients who were dying from this deadly virus that was spreading all over the place. Dr. Kent Brantley was there, had moved there about a year before with his family, It was getting so dangerous that he had sent his family home, and while he was there still serving, he got a fever one day. And then he slowly got worse and worse. All the signs and symptoms were there, and he had to diagnose himself as having Ebola, the first American to have this virus. So you might remember this was became worldwide news, especially in our own country. And he's lying on his deathbed. Most people are not surviving this. Most people are dying. And he's all alone in West Africa with Ebola. Meanwhile, it was August 2014. I was working at a church in Mount Pleasant. We had invited a guy named Randy Harris, who's a professor at ACU, to come and to preach for us that Sunday morning. So he came into town on a Saturday night. We invited him over to our house for dinner. And while we were having dinner, we were talking about what was taking place, because at the time, we didn't know if Dr. Brantley would survive. And while he was in Mount Pleasant, Randy Harris received a phone call from Dr. Brantley, because Dr. Brantley was one of his former students. And as they were talking on the phone, he told Randy Harris, I believe that God can deliver me from this. But even if he does not, I will not serve any other God. So he shared that with us that night while we were having dinner. And at the time, we didn't know what was going to happen. It's one thing to read Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, and be impressed 
with the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's another thing to quote these words when you're lying on your deathbed and you don't know what's going to happen to you and you've given up your life to go be a missionary, but you're still saying, I think God can deliver me, I believe it, but even if not, I will not bow and I will not worship any other God. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say before the king. They're given one more chance to speak and they say these bold words, and they're not willing to compromise their faith. As hard as it may be, place yourself in the shoes of three, these three men. What would you do? Wouldn't it be easier to bow your knee before this idol and to say, I may do this physically, but I know in my heart I don't believe that this is any more than a statue. That would probably be the easy thing to do. And you could probably make an argument, I'm better off alive serving in the king's court than I am dead, so I'll compromise here so that I can remain alive and continue to try to make an impact. But that's not the approach they take. They don't compromise their faith. And they know if they compromise their faith here, they'll probably lose their credibility as a witness. And maybe they know that if they compromise their faith here, where else would they compromise? And it's the same for us. We start compromising our faith in certain areas, and slowly, subtly, we have to ask the question, where else do we compromise our faith? So you know the story, if you're familiar with it, in verse 19 through 23. Nebuchadnezzar is so upset with this, he turns up the heat seven times hotter. He throws them in there. The guards that throw them in there burn up, and they die because the heat is so hot. This is known as a trial by ordeal. This is in the ancient world, uh, forms of cruel punishment where basically your trial is if you survive, then I guess you're innocent. If you die, then you were wrong all along. So throw them in the fire. They're probably going to die. We'll see what happens. And then we get this interesting twist in the story in verse 24. While they're in the fire, bound up, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire, they answered? True, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the fourth has the appearance of a god. I don't know how he's seeing what he's seeing, how he sees these three men, but he doesn't just see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sees four. He says one of them has the appearance of a god. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was polytheistic, believed in multiple gods. He doesn't know what he's seeing. Now, we can speculate as Christians looking at the story from this side, and and sometimes we say, well, that's an angel. Sometimes we say, maybe that was the pre-incarnate Christ. Maybe that's a Christophany. Maybe that's an appearance of Jesus who was with God from the beginning. We don't know. It's all speculation. But somehow, we're told through Nebuchadnezzar and what he sees that these three men are alive, and they're not alone. That God is with them. They go through the fiery trial, and God was indeed able to deliver them. So Nebuchadnezzar calls them to come out of the fire, verse 26, and they do. In verse 27, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And look at these words. Who has sent his angel, so that's what he believes he's seeing, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. 
They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve or worship any god except their own. So their faith, their determination, their resolve, like we talked about last week, and their survival makes an impact on Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, wow, look at them. They disobeyed my command, and now they're still alive. Something powerful is taking place. Michael Jordan is considered probably the greatest basketball player of all time. He wrote a book called Driven From Within, and in this book he shares a story about a time where he was at a guy named Fred Whitfield's house. Fred Whitfield is also associated with the NBA. These two were buddies. They're getting ready to go out to eat. Michael Jordan said, hey, it's cold outside. Can I borrow a coat? Fred said, sure, it's down the hall to the right. So he's waiting on Michael Jordan to come back with one of his coats that he's borrowing. And then a few minutes go by, and he's thinking, what's taking him so long? And then Michael Jordan comes walking down the hallway with an arm full of Fred Whitfield's clothes, shoes, jackets, shirts, and he dumps them on the kitchen floor. Fred Whitfield's sitting there thinking, this is really odd behavior, but it's also Michael Jordan, so I don't really know what to do. Michael Jordan walks back down the hallway, a few minutes later comes back with more clothes, and what Fred Whitfield notices while no one is speaking is that all these clothes, shoes, shirts, they all come from Puma, and Michael Jordan is represented by Nike. So he takes out everything out of his closet that wasn't Nike, went into the kitchen, got a butcher knife, and started chopping it all up. And then he threw it away. And then he walked over to Fred Whitfield, and he said, call my Nike representative tomorrow, and he'll replace all this for you. He said, but I don't ever want to see you in anything other than Nike again. And then he said, you can't ride the fence. Now, for some reason, that story intrigues me. I do think his behavior is odd, and maybe because he's Michael Jordan, he gets away with it. I wouldn't recommend going into anyone's house and doing that, or just don't come into my house and do it at least. But he gets away with it, and you know he kind of serves as a, an example of idol smashing. Takes out anything that didn't represent Nike, and he cut it up, and he threw it away. But what I really like are these words, you can't ride the fence. It's true for us in the world that we live in. It's easy to have one foot in, one foot out. It's easy to ride the fence. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't ride the fence. They don't compromise their faith. And they say, we're not going to worship any other God, even if it means death. So at the end of Daniel chapter 3, verse 29, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the chapter ends, just like chapter 2 ends, with King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, making compliments about God, about Yahweh, about the true creator. And we're going to do a case study on Nebuchadnezzar next week. So I won't talk a whole lot about him right now, but we just look at this chapter and again we see this internal resolve, this firm determination that these Hebrew men have while they're living in exile, while their home field advantage has been taken away from them. They're aliens and strangers in this world and yet God has equipped them to not only survive but to thrive. God tested them in chapter 1 and they... They proposed that they're not going to defile themselves with the king's food and wine. And then they had the 10-day challenge. And in that small test of faith, they were being prepared for much larger tests of faith. 
And they refused to bow and worship these idols in a public way, facing death because of the resolve that they had in them. Timothy Keller once wrote that idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. If your soul is devoted to something that becomes more important to you than God, then that is your idol. If your soul is devoted to something that's more important to you than God, that becomes your idol. We see idolatry all over the place. It's just hidden in plain sight. Usually, and unfortunately, we settle for cheap God substitutes. So we don't want to just preach at you, and I don't want to sound like, well, that's just a preacher telling you that things are wrong in this culture. There are some things that are wrong, and not everything is wrong. But it takes a little self-examination to see where you're at and how you're growing in your faith. And so one of the things that we've tried to offer along the way over the last few months are these challenges. And I proposed a challenge, or really it's not just me, it's our staff, our elders, this challenge that we called, What You Gonna Quit? Actually, we took this catchy title from Tony, a class that he took. And the challenge is to follow the example of what we see in Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1, and to examine your own life, and hopefully you've had a week to pray and think about this, and if you're hearing it for the first time today, well then you can still join the challenge. But to look within yourself, Look within your habits, maybe some of the secret sins in your life, and prayerfully consider one thing that maybe you can quit for 10 days, that you can go without. I've already mentioned in this lesson and last week that uh, food for me had become that idol, so with the help of someone else, we came up with the idea that I was going to stop eating at 8 p.m. every night, which for some of you that's easy, for me it's been incredibly difficult. And making that public statement last week, I've had a lot of people hold me accountable this week. You say it publicly, and I've had people text me at 8 o'clock or ask me, am I eating? And I'm like, no, I'm not. So maybe whatever it is that you're quitting or that you're going to stop, maybe you need to be held accountable publicly. Maybe this is something that you post on our Facebook group. Unless you're quitting Facebook, then you might need to find another way of doing that, which my wife is quitting social media or at least Instagram. And so I don't know what it may be for you and your life, Maybe it's something that you claim publicly and we all hold each other accountable. Maybe it's something that you talk with in your connect group and you all hold each other accountable. Maybe it's something that you're taking very serious and there's some things going on in your life that maybe you don't want shared publicly, but maybe it's something that you need to grab a friend or two and share with them privately so that they can hold you accountable. We don't want to settle for cheap God substitutes. We don't want to bow or serve any other gods. And this is just one step in the process of growing towards Christ. What's something that you could quit for 10 days? Journal your experience as you go along and take on this challenge. I mentioned last week, this isn't about like a Pharisee way of approaching faith. This isn't about legalism. This is just about opening ourselves up to Christ. This is about pushing back against the forces that so easily enslave us. This is about refusing to let the disciple be the primary thing, I mean, letting our culture be the primary thing that disciples us. We're about making, maturing, and multiplying faithful followers of Jesus. This is about saying we want Jesus to be the one that we worship. This morning, if you have any thoughts that go along with this, If you have anything that you need to share, and maybe there is something pressing on your heart, and you know if you walk out of the door and you don't say anything to anyone, you're just going to keep doing whatever it is that you're doing. Well, one of the things that we offer on Sunday mornings is we have elders at this church. We have shepherds. One will be up front. 
A few will be in the back. Some will be around the room. You can grab them and talk with them privately and pray with them. If you're ready to be a follower of Jesus, you can come up front. We're going to sing a few more songs. And this is an opportunity for you to respond if you need to. Please.